All right. I really um, I think it's helpful to hear the word um, in, in its entirety. We, we are going to get into it here in a second, kind of break it down. Um, but I want to start by telling a little story. So my wife and I have been married since um, June of 1998. Now, I know that many of you, most of all of you, were not born that time. And I'm becoming more and more okay with that, okay? Um, I'm accepting that I'm just the old guy. That's me. My nephew, who's like three one time, I was with my parents. Um, I was in the same car with him. There was my, my parents who were in their 70s and me in the backyard. He goes, who's that with grandma and grandpa? And the, who's the old guy with grandma and grandpa? That, me. So anyway, I'm the, so you guys remind me all the time. My nephew reminds me. It's fine. Um, but I've been married since 98. And there's one particular person in this room I'm pretty thankful that wasn't born before then. And her name is Kylie. Um, she is my daughter our first daughter. She was born in February of 2002, okay? So here's the story. My wife and I were living in California. We, we were both working full-time at a church, um, and, and the, you know, my, Kylie was due February 27th, and it was like February 4th, and we had a routine uh, ultrasound appointment at, the, at our doctor's office, and so we went, we had the ultrasound. We were going to go have lunch afterwards and then go back to work. Um, we go have this ultrasound. And the ultrasound technician, she's doing her thing with the jelly. I don't know if you've seen that. But anyway, she's doing her thing. And, and uh, she says, huh, well, hang on just a second. I'll be back. And we're like, well, that's never happened. So, okay. So she leaves. She comes back. She says, so... You know, I noticed some things in your old sound that your doctor wants to take a look at or talk to you about. So I actually, she's ready for you. Your doctor is ready for you. Which, when does that ever happen? Um, so she said, just, just head on upstairs to her office and she'd like to talk with you. Okay. So we go up there. She says, so the amniotic fluid is low, which means that there's, there's, we need to check this out. We need to figure out what's going on and make sure everything's okay. So we don't have the right equipment to do that, but across the parking lot into the hospital, they have the right equipment. So we go, okay. So we walk across the parking lot to the hospital, um, and we call our parents, and we're like, hey, this is happening. They don't seem too worried, so we're not worried, I guess. Anyway, we get in there. They have a room for us. They hook my wife up. They check her out, and then the nurse leaves. And so we're like, oh, okay. The nurse comes back. So your doctor will be here in 30 minutes to deliver your baby, and um, everything's fine. And it's, it's, it's this moment where the words coming out of her mouth were, things are not fine at all. But her face was so happy. And it was like, deceptive. Like, you are going to die. That's it. Do you have any questions? Um, that's kind of what it felt like. And it was like, wait, what? I mean, we didn't have anything. We didn't have a car seat. We didn't have, we didn't have a, a bag. You're supposed to have a bag ready to go. We didn't have that. Um, we, hadn't, we hadn't toured the hospital. We didn't know anything, but we didn't know where we were. We were just in some room. So anyway, so she says, here's this spacesuit, Dad, which is basically this giant bodysuit 
thing, scrub thing that you put over and, and we're going to take your wife and get her ready for surgery. And, and so uh, you have about 30 minutes and then we'll be ready. Um, and so I'm like, okay. And my wife's like, go get a camera. We didn't have a camera. <laughs> so I ran down to the bookstore, paid $15, highway robbery for a disposable camera, the kind you go <laughs> click, click, click. So I go down, before I put my spacesuit on, save dignity, I went down, bought a camera, came back, um, put the spacesuit on, sitting out in the lobby, holding this camera, going, what just happened? Um, and everything turned out fine. She was five pounds, 12 ounces, and she was tiny. And she was 5'9 by the time we left the hospital, because they always lose a little before, they, before we leave. And I remember putting her in this car seat. And this is before they had the little, like, I don't know if you've seen car seats for infant infants, but they have this little padding that goes around that kind of keeps, we didn't have one of those. We, I just barely got a car seat. And so we put her in there, and her head just goes. <laughs> She's a tiny little baby in this car, and I'm driving like five miles an hour home because I don't want anything to happen. Scary. Um, but birth stories are amazing, all of them. All of them are amazing. Um, and in fact, we have another birth story uh, with our son, but if, you, you know, if you're interested in that, you can ask Kylie about it. It's quite interesting, quite funny. So all of them are, are, all of them are amazing, and, and Jesus gets into this story with um, Nicodemus, and he starts to describe a birth story that is also pretty amazing. And, and so I want to get into that. So we're going we're gonna to jump into John 3, but before that, I want to establish a little bit of context. So whenever we study the Bible, what we want to do is we want to arrive at the author's intended meaning. We want to know what did the author mean, and why did God put this in the Bible, and what, what does he want us to get from this? We don't want to just come to the Bible with our ideas and make it say what we want. We want it to speak to us. And so to, in order to understand that, we need to understand context. And the context of John 3 is obviously John 1 and 2, and there's a few key things that are really important for us to recognize. First is that Jesus starts, uh, John starts in John 1 talking about light and darkness. Darkness. You heard that referenced um, in this section that, we're, that Israel read. The next is a few um, verses later, he starts talking about children who are born of God. And so he introduces birth language. And then at the end of chapter 1, you have Jesus' own divinity claim. I don't know if you caught it in what Israel read, but Jesus makes the same claim again. So you have those three things that kind of, John has already kind of started, those themes that have already started. And then in John, John 2, you have, um, you have this Jesus performing a miracle. And so, you know, reputation and, and news kind of travels and Jesus is doing things and doing signs and wonders that are like, whoa, who is this guy? He is not what he seems. Um, second one, you have Jesus confronting the Jewish authorities in the temple. He, he goes in and he cleanses the temple. I mean, he turns over tables. He, he drives people out. And it's a very public um, confrontation, a very public challenge to the current Jewish religious system in the temple. And then, and then you have 
the end of chapter 2. Now, most of you, I would, I would be willing to bet, most of you have not really thought about or read John chapter 2, or the end of John chapter 2. But we're going to read it. So it's on, it should be on the screen. Um, it says, I don't have it in my notes. While he was in Jerusalem, during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So I'm going to give you two minutes to talk amongst your friends about what that is all about. What is he talking about? So take a couple minutes and, and talk about it, and then we will come back. All right. Okay, so I'm not sure what you came up with, um, but I, I think what's happening here reminds me of something that happened in history. In, 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 um, how, how many of you know the story of Jim and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot? Many of you have heard of them? Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, there's a book called Through the Gates of Splendor. Highly, highly recommend. Or, if you want to watch the movie, End of the Spear, okay? Both tell this story. Essentially, um, Jim, Elliot, and four friends and their wives all decide to move to the jungles of Ecuador to, to reach this, this group of people called the Wuwani tribe. And they wanted to, they wanted to reach this tribe because this tribe was known, it was infamous for being one of the most brutal um, tribes in terms of killing anyone and everyone they encountered, including themselves. They didn't have any sense of morality. There was, uh, there was just um, darkness there. And so Jim, Elliot, and his four friends and their wives, they all moved down there. They moved close to a city near there, and they started t- taking surveys in and, and trying to figure out how to breach them. They started learning how to drop food and supplies, and they used a plane to kind of circle. Whenever the plane would circle, they would drop supplies to kind of show them that this plane is friendly, it's giving you things, all this stuff. I don't know how long. It took a long time. Eventually, they decided to make their first contact. 
So they, they fly in, and they circle in, they drop some food, and, food, and then they land right along this riverbank. And, and instantly, the, we don't know exactly what happened, but they were killed right away. All five guys, dead. And the rest of the story goes on. The wives, the five wives and their families, eventually make contact with this community, and they move into the village, and they live there, and they share Jesus with them, and they, they share them the way of Jesus. And one of the guys who kills, one of, it was part of that tribe, or part of the, the, the group of guys that went and killed those missionary men, um, ends up becoming one of the elders of the church there, and one of the godfathers of one of the sons of the, a, a guy who died, named Nate Saint. And I heard, I've heard Nate Saint speak live, and he brought this elder with him. And, um, and so it's an amazing story. But I, so I want you to, so here's, here's what I think is happening with Jesus in, that, in John 2. Imagine those women show up, and they have, let's say that happened today. And those women show up, and they have cell phones, and they have modern technology, and they have all kinds of knowledge about agricultural and all kinds of things. And they come in, and the people there see it as like miracles, like signs and wonders. Imagine it, but you're not there to just show them cool tricks and like impress them with your technology. You're there because you believe the love of Jesus will change the hearts of these people to love each other better. And, and so you... But, but all they want, they just want your phone to play some cool game on it. They, they want to take pictures of, of themselves and, you know, to take selfies. And they, they want nothing to do with who you really are. They just want your stuff. I think that's what's happening with Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. He, he starts to be himself. And, and they're, like, really impressed. And they're really quick to, like, yeah, he's awesome. He's like, yeah, you don't. You don't know me. You, you like me for my cool stuff. You don't like me for who I am. You don't accept me. You accept what I am bringing to you. And I think that's what's happening. And then we come to John 3. And he says, it says that there's a man named, uh, from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like, wow, Jesus, relax a little. Um, ease into it, maybe. What's happening there? Well, the, you know, you could ask this question, is, is Nicodemus a nice guy? He seems genuine. I don't know. You can read all kinds of things into text. We, we don't really know the tone of the questions that were asked. Uh, most, from what I was reading, believe Nicodemus wasn't coming just, hey, Jesus, I think you're awesome. Tell me everything you know. You know um, I think he, he's, he's coming with a little bit of a, we know. We know who you are. You must be from God um, because you're doing some cool things. But the point of it isn't really whether or not Nicodemus was a great guy or whether he was trying to trap Jesus. The focus is on how significant what Jesus is doing here. Remember, this is in the context of Jesus confronting the, the, the Jewish authorities, the religious system in place there. They had gotten way off track. 
Um, and, and he was confronting them publicly, and here he, he has this opportunity to challenge and to confront private, privately. And he says, you must be born again. Now that word comes with it two ideas. One is new, obviously, like birth, new. But the second one is born from above. It's not just new for the, for the sake of being new, but it's, it's, a, it's a new that is only from God. Um, John had already talked about this in, in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. You can see that, that it, for anyone to be the children of God, they must be, you know, there's this born again thing, born from God. So he says, so Nicodemus says, we know, we know all about you. And Jesus essentially says, did you know you need to be born again? And Nicodemus' answer in verse 4, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asks, can he enter his mother a second time and be born? Now, Nico, as I will call him because it's easier, um, could ask this, he could be asking this in a challenging way, he could be asking this in an earnest way, we don't know, but either way, he's like us. He lives in a physical world, he sees, what he sees is, is physical things, and he, that's all he can think about. And his, his world is, is physical. His eyes, what he sees, is physical. And Jesus is challenging to, to see something otherly. So if you've ever experienced um, something that you can't explain, like if you've ever had something happen to you where you, you just you can't explain, but you know it was real, then you know what Jesus is talking about. And many of us who've, who've come to Christ maybe not had a big blinding moment like, like Saul did on the road of, to Damascus. Maybe you've had little moments like I have, um, but moments where, that you can't deny, moments where you remember something that God had done and, and you know, m- moments where we recognize like, Jesus, you're, you're it. I'm, I'm all in for you. I surrender. And, and you experience grace at another level that you, you experience forgiveness. You experience something that is otherly, and you feel new. You feel like a different person, and you know what Jesus is talking about. Jesus goes on in verse, um, in verse 5 here, and he says, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What, uh, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, but whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where, where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be? So quick background. Jesus uses water and spirit. There's verses in the Old Testament that, kind of, that, draw, that John is drawing from that um, get at this idea of, of like, life-giving. And he says there is a difference between life from the flesh and life from the spirit. Now, the word flesh is an important word in the New Testament um, it, it, because it's, it's almost always referring to kind of our natural, sinful self. Now, here's a, maybe a quick overview of the Bible's view of us, the Bible's view of humanity, that we are valuable but sinful that we have dignity, yet depravity, that we are redeemable, yet broken, 
Um, the Bible doesn't describe us as good people who make some mistakes once in a while. The Bible describes us as beautiful and valuable people who are sinful on their own apart from God. And Jesus is saying that a change, a rebirth, a, a transformation must take place for you to, to see Jesus, for you to enter his kingdom. Now, in other words, he's saying, Nico, you should know this because if you had spiritual eyes, you would see it in things like the wind. And so wind and spirit have a lot in common. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which is also wind. So Jesus is playing off of that word. He's also, he's also describing something that they experience, this, this mystery, uh, this unseen thing, that it contains its own power, it cannot be controlled, um, it can be heard but, and felt but not analyzed, it, it, it can be experienced but it's beyond our comprehension, and, and so he's describing this thing, and that's first century they wouldn't have had the, maybe the technology that we, we have to be able to analyze wind, but they, they would know that it just comes when it comes. And so Nico thought he knew what he knew, and then he spends time with Jesus, and he realizes he doesn't know much, and the teacher of Israel becomes a student. So verse, there's verse 10. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Jesus replied, truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so here, Jesus turns the corner and he goes from vague descriptions, um, spiritual um, analogies to a direct challenge. Now, remember, it's, it's in this context of confronting the authority and challenging that, like, you guys don't got it and something new has to happen. And he's essentially circling back to what Nico said um, at the beginning when he says, I, we, we know that you're from God. Um, in verse 11 through 13, he's essentially saying this, all of us testify to what we see and, and what we hear. But Nico you don't believe what I've seen and what I hear. You, don't, you won't accept my testimony um, because my, my testimony um, doesn't fit into your box. And he says, you say I come from God, and yet you, you don't believe that I am literally from heaven like I am. And Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. He is the Son of Man. That's a reference to this in Daniel 7, to this divine king who's been given authority over every nation and every people group. And he, Jesus, right there in verse 14, claims, verse 13, claims it again. Son of Man. So Jesus goes on, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in, his, in him may have eternal life. And here's the famous verse. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send 
His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Now, Moses and the snake story. That's a story from Numbers 21. You can go back and read that story. Essentially, combining that story with this famous John 3.16 verse, Jesus is pointing to this idea that Jesus came to save us because we need saving. And that's, and that's what he's getting at here. Um, Nico doesn't come, it appears, from, from what we understand about Pharisees and from what we understand about the language and the words and the grammar behind all of this, that Nico Nicodemus isn't coming humble to say, Lord, teach me. He's coming to kind of question and, and challenge a little. And Jesus challenges right back and says, you need saved too. So we're all perishing without him. We all need a new thing. We all need a spiritual thing. And that can only happen by looking to Jesus. And then he continues in verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe in him already is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his work may be shown to be accomplished by God. Essentially, he's saying, um, if someone's going to rob somebody, um, they don't do it in broad daylight. They don't do it when the lights are on. They don't do it when everybody can see them. No, you do it in darkness. You do it concealed. You do it when nobody will know. Because when, when you don't want your life to be in the light, it means you want things to be hidden. And Jesus is kind of alluding to that here. He's being very clear. He's offering a choice to Nicodemus and to us. He said, you can stay in the darkness and try to keep hiding, or you can come to the light where Jesus um, is, and so that your life can accomplish what God has for it to accomplish. Um, There is this idea that God has for you, this life that he has for you, and It's not something that you can just figure out and discover on your own. You need him to know. So we're going to come back to this idea here in just a second and talk a little bit more about those two things and some some major ideas that um, float around in our culture that we all at some level buy into and believe. And uh, and we'll, we'll do that after the break. So take a little break and we'll have some announcements or something. And then we'll be back. Hello, everyone listening at home. Um, I forgot to record the second half of my talk tonight. So it is 1030 on Thursday after everyone's long gone. And I'm going to record what I did tonight for you. Now. A couple things you should know is I probably won't have the same energy I had uh, a couple hours ago. And also, I'm 
I might be a little delirious, so you may get some bonus things. Who knows? Congratulations. But if you're listening this far, obviously you want to know what I have to say, so here it is. I want to conclude my time talking about two men, two men from history, two men who have, uh, who were real men, um, who are really dead men. Um, both have had a profound effect on the way you and I think about ourselves in relation to the world. Um, one is Augustine of Hippo. He was from Africa. He he wrote and lived in the four, in the 400s. And the other was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a Swiss philosopher who lived and wrote in the 1700s. Now, I'm not sure if you know much about either of those two men. You might know more about Augustine. You may know more about Rousseau, depending on if you took a philosophy class or not. But both men wrote autobiographies called Confessions, um, both entitled the same thing, Confessions. And both had similar experiences uh, that, they, that they wrote about and they, that they reflected on that had, a, that had a, a major influence on the way they thought. Um, and they're similar, but they concluded two very different ways. Augustine um, tells a story about stealing pears from somebody. I'm not sure who it was, can't remember. Uh, but he might have done this with, with some friends, and he stole their pears simply because he wanted to simply because he thought it would be fun. And he said he even had better pears in his garden. So he wasn't trying to, he wasn't hungry. He wasn't trying to, he was just, he desired these pears and he stole them. And he reflected on it later. Um, Rousseau, he also stole something from someone's garden, but this time it was uh, asparagus. And I don't know why he would choose to steal asparagus, um, I mean, I like eating asparagus mainly because of what I call the science experiment that happens a little bit later when you go to the bathroom and you smell something weird. That, to me, is kind of fun. But who knows? My, I don't know why Rousseau wanted this asparagus, but he decided to steal these, his friend's parents' asparagus, and then he went and sold that asparagus to make some extra cash. And so both reflected on this experience and both talked about kind of dealing with why they decided to do that. What made them do that bad thing, stealing someone else's property? And Augustine, he concludes and he looks inward and he blames himself for his sin because he looks within, he saw sin and selfishness and, and no one was to blame for his sin but himself. Rousseau looked in and saw nothing but good inside of him. And so he concluded that it must have been in external influences that made him do something bad. In other words, he blames society. He's pretty explicit about that. See, Augustine had a view of himself and the world um, that was that the world was designed and had and ordered and had purpose um, in and of itself, that, that 
ultimately that God had given it design and order and purpose, and that he was to look outside of himself to discover his purpose, not within, but outside, ultimately to God. And, and he, was to, he was to try to figure out how he fits into this world that already has, um, has a order and purpose. And Rousseau kind of operated from a view of himself in the world that, that meaning and purpose was found within and that everything on the outside only corrupted the good that was from the inside. He even had some kind of quote, I can't remember exactly, where he basically just said, you know, when a person's born, they are perfect. And the longer they're in this world, the more they are corrupted by it. So he really believed that, um, you know, he, that, that the goal was to actually, to actually look within, to become who you want to be. In fact, to him, he looked out into the world and said, I get to decide and determine everything that I see and exist, and, and I get to determine the purpose for things, and I get to determine my purpose for things, and I get to look within, and, and actually it's more about self-actualization than, than it is about surrender to something greater. And, and so Augustine's experience caused him to look to God for meaning and purpose and, and experience rebirth. And Rousseau's experience caused him to look within himself to determine ultimate meaning and purpose is found within and to um, self-actualize. So it's, it's obvious which one Jesus lines up with, um, but which one do you most likely line up with? if you're honest. Now, Jesus has this encounter with Nicodemus. And, and in, in this encounter with Nicodemus, it teaches us that only God, our creator, who is outside of us, can show us who we are created to be. That there is this, it's, it's not from within. It, it, it comes from the outside. It requires divine revelation. It, re, it requires um, a birth, a, a new birth from above. And so the, what Jesus is getting at is pretty profound, and it stands in contrast to it. It stands in opposition, opposition to what, what you and I experience on a regular basis. In fact, I would challenge you when you're listening to the music you're listening to, if it's not, um, if it doesn't have biblical themes and, and ideas in it, most likely it has Rousseau written all over it. Most likely it has elements of you do you, you look within you, you find you, you are beautiful, you are perfect the way you are. Now, I believe we are beautiful. I believe we are we, are, we have dignity. I believe we have um, all these things, um, value, all because uh, we are made in God's image. But it's almost like that has been taken to this extreme level where, no, you are, you are perfect just, just the way you are, and nothing needs to change. In fact, everything else around you needs to change. It's just the, the problem with that is 
we can't all do that. We can't all say, my, my reality is the reality because our realities are going to bump up against each other. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. I'm, I'm, I'm freelancing here a little. But, but Jesus is pointing to something. He's not saying something new uh, to Nicodemus. He's drawing from a reality that is all throughout the Scriptures. In fact, if, if, um, if, you, if you walk through the Bible, walk through the Old Testament in, in the New, you see God coming and saying things like this, okay? Abraham, get up and go, and I'll show you where I want you to go. Abraham, before that moment, had no clue how to follow God. God had to reveal it to him. So Abraham, go, I will show you the place. He says to Israel, hey, walk. see that body of water, the, the Red Sea there? You know how you're going to escape the Egyptians that are right behind you, ready to kill you? Walk through the water. What? Yeah, you're going to walk through the water. The Israelites, Moses, would have had no, that would have never been the option to walk through a water that's going to split. No. Um, he says, hey, Israelites, you know, city Jericho, this giant fortress of a thing that nobody can conquer, um, just walk around it for seven days. And then on the seventh day, um, you're going to walk around it, and then you're going to shout, and it's just going to crumble. What? Yeah, no. None of us would have figured that out. Gideon, hey, Gideon, take your army of 20,000, and you're fighting this, the Midian people and this huge army. Take that, that army of 20,000, just, just so that you know, like, I'm in charge and that, that I see things and can do things that you can't fathom. Take your army of 20,000 all the way down to 300, and then I'll tell you what to do. And he does, and he wins. Samuel. Um, ignore all those big, strong, strapping sons of Jesse and go after that one son, David. He's not here. He's small. He's, he's looking after the sheep. Um, he's the king. Mary, um, so you're going to have a child, and I know you've never been with a man, but you're going to be with child. And the Messiah, God, he's going to come, and he's going to be born in a manger, um, a feeding trough. None of us see any of that coming. Ananias, Ananias um, in, in, in Acts 9, go find Saul, you know, the, the guy who's trying to kill all the Christians. He's out to kill you. Um, go and he's your brother now. He, um, he is, he's now going to work for me and so I want you to go befriend him. It's like God comes at us in, in the Bible, and he, he's reminding us over and over and over, you guys, I created you. I created you with, with, with beauty and dignity, and I gave you minds that are amazing, but you can never figure me out. You can never figure this out. You can never on your own um, Find the way to me. And, and so what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, ultimately, Nicodemus, I know you think you know a lot, um, but all of that 
that, that natural way of trying to figure out things and do religion has to die in order for a new birth to be born, for a new thing to happen. So Jesus is, is he's not just confronting um, Nicodemus in this way. He's confronting us. He's saying that in order for us to find our way to him, we've got to be reborn. We've got to be made new. A, a new thing, a spiritual thing has to happen within us because we could have never pictured, never seen the cross or the resurrection being the thing. And guys, let me tell you, this is how simple it is for me. Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection following, those two things, because I believe those are true, real, historical events, that, though, that changes everything. If you start there and then you zoom out a little to Jesus' life, to his teachings, to what he said, to what he believed, you start to peel back and you go, okay, what Jesus is saying here is a big deal. And I would really challenge you to begin to listen to the things you hear and the things you see and to hear the concepts like truth is found within you. You have the truth. You have meaning and purpose within you. You just got to look inside of you. I would challenge you, encourage you um, to start listening for those kinds of, here I go, I will call it a lie. Those are lies. And those stand in direct opposition to Jesus and to what he's asking us, which is to deny self, die to self, and pick up our cross and follow him. To find new birth in him, to find new life in him. It is something, it is a new thing that God wants to do in us. And so, um, I guess I want to end with just leaving you to think through what it would mean to, um, to recognize when, this, when the air we breathe is, is wanting you to buy into this idea of looking within you to find meaning and purpose. And instead of hearing Jesus say, you must be made new by me. You must look to me um, for new life. So I don't know what you need right now. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what kind of struggles you're having. But I know that um, and I believe that wholeheartedly that for a new thing to be done in you, it has to go through him. It has to be from him. Um, I hope and pray that this has been encouraging to you and, and point you to the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus' 